Joel Barker. For those of you that don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here, and our senior pastor has been sick for quite some time, and so other people have been stepping in to preach more often, and I get the privilege to preach again this morning. We've been going through the book of Galatians, and we will continue to be there this morning, so please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. There it is. By the way, I hope you have some good resolutions in place. I've never fully known how to describe it, but I, I really love the new year. It's actually... Well, it's my favorite time of the year. I love Christmas for obvious reasons. Uh, but there's also something that I really enjoy about a new year. New opportunities to try to grow in ways that you know that you're weak in. It's just a good kind of time to restart. It's good to take stock of where things are at. And the world kind of slows down at Christmas time and New Year's, and so you have a little more time to just take stock of where things are out and think about what you're doing and are you doing the things that matter and what needs to change. We may talk about that here in just a moment, but this is just a pastoral exhortation that if you haven't thought about resolutions, I would recommend you to do so. It's not a law, but I think it's helpful. But I'm mainly here to talk about Galatians 5, not give you a New Year's pep talk. So in Galatians 5, we'll begin in verse 7 this morning, and we'll read through verse 12. Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us benefit from my sermon this morning and from your word this morning. I pray you'd help me be concise and clear and that my words would be in step with your word. Father, I long to be helpful to the people that I love here before me. Give them attentive ears and attitudes. Give them energy to chew and meditate on your word. And when they leave here with good work to do and encouraged in the faith. I ask you to give this to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so remember, uh, just to catch us everybody up, Paul used to be with the Galatians. He taught the Galatians the gospel. Paul left, and he heard that the Galatians had been duped by false teachers regarding the faith, and were going back to considering circumcision and the works of the law. And so the whole point of the letter is that he's He's refuted the false teachers and their false doctrines, and he's been teaching them over these last few chapters. And then in chapter 5, he begins to put it together, and he turns the corner, and he says at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, it's for freedom that you've been set free. You're actually supposed to be free, Paul, he wants you to know that, 
But if you accept circumcision as a requirement, then Christ is of no advantage to you. And you actually have to obey the whole law. You will not be free. And he's made that clear previously. And then he speaks very plainly and straightforwardly to the people that he loves. And he says, you were running well. You were doing a good job. When I was there with you, you were actually running well. You were obeying the truth. But now you've been misled by men who have been teaching you false doctrines, and now you're not running so well. But you were running well. And I think that first part of the verse can actually be an encouragement to you because it means you too can and have run well. That is true of you. See, we often say sanctification, growing in godliness, is a slow process. And it definitely is slower than any of us would ever like. It often does not feel like a run. It feels like a crawl. But if you keep the gospel pure, and you walk in the Spirit, like we'll be reminded about and learn about in chapter 6, you have nothing to worry about. If you walk in the spirits and you keep your doctrine of prayer, you have nothing to worry about. And that's not just me saying that. Luther says the same thing in his commentary. The growing process may seem slow to us, but God judges differently. Luther says what, se- what may seem to us a life slow in Christian development may seem to God a life of rapid progression in grace. And here's what I... And Luther, want to encourage you with as we begin this passage. I want you to think about where God has taken you over the last decade in this church. For many of you, you've been here that long. Some of you, shorter. But all of you are massively different than you were over a decade ago. I know most everyone's story in this room to varying degrees, but each of you has run well. It may have seemed like a slow crawl these last 10 to 12 years in this church, but look where we're at today. A lot of that is thanks to God working through Pastor Josh in many of our lives, but it's not just him. It's come from small groups from prayer meetings and lunches and dinners and worship on Sunday, book studies, living life together, youth group, conflict, college ministry, children's ministry, memorizing scripture, reading your Bible. God has used a multitude of means to help you grow in grace, and it can sure feel like a crawl, but then when you step back and look at how much God has taught us in 10 years, it's pretty incredible. To think about what we were 10 years ago and to think about all the things that God has matured us in the last 10 years is pretty incredible. Think of the truths that you've learned that we could have never handled as a church. Think about how our trust in the sovereignty of God has grown. Think of the maturity in your own life. In so many ways, you used to require milk, and now you can actually 
have some real meat. You listening and learning about baptism and not having a single person in our church leave over that discussion is a testament to God's power to protect the unity of our church, but it's also a testament to God's work in you to mature you and to love truth. What other church do you know of who can have their senior pastor, their best pastor, their best preacher be sick and out of the pulpit for this long and not see a large portion of the church leave? But it's because you've grown and you've matured and you love the church more than just one man. You love truth and you've committed yourself to God's bride. You've run a good race. How many churches can say a single thing about homosexuality or abortion without people throwing a fit? But you love God's truth even when it's hard to swallow. That wasn't the case eight, nine years ago. You love God's truth even when it's hard and you believe it's good and right and you're, you're willing to take ridicule from your friends, from your family members, from the world because God has grown you over the last decade in ways that you were not there 10 years ago. Think about how selfish the husbands of our church were 10 years ago. And some of you ladies are saying, that's still a crawl. But think about this, really. Would you rather be married to the man that you had 10 years ago or the one that God has given you today? So praise God. I could go on and on about the ways you've grown, but I really mean it. You have grown. You have run well. So be encouraged. It's been a crawl in some sense. But when you think about how far our church has come and what we've been through together and the conflict, you may feel like your sanctification sanctification, growth and godliness has been short and slow, but Paul and I would say you're running well. You were running well. You are in so many ways. And if you keep your doctrine pure and you walk in the Spirit, you will run well. But we'll talk more about walking in the Spirit in the days to come, Lord willing. Now on to the harder part of the sermon. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's the second part of verse 7. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were doing well. Who hindered you? Why'd you stop? Why'd you slow down? I was talking to another pastor this week, and he helped me put into words something that I've been trying to put into words for really a couple of years now. I first started noticing in my own heart, but I think if my discernment's correct, I think I believe I see it in many of our hearts in this church. See, we don't have a perfect correlation one-to-one for what's happening in Galatians and what's happening in our church. But there are certainly similarities, right? So we don't have men coming into our church telling you the gospel that Paul told you is wrong and you need to accept circumcision. We're not having circumcision debates in our church that are derailing and derailing our running of the Christian race or the Christian life. But I do sense that as a church, 
as a whole. In some ways, there is a level of joylessness in our Christian faith that I haven't really been able to fully figure out yet. And it seems that our love of Christ has dwindled at least a little bit. It seems that there was a level of joy that once existed in our hearts and that's dampened a little bit. This isn't true of every single person across the board, but I do think overall, as a church, there was a love and zeal for Jesus that used to burn a little brighter maybe some years ago than it does now. And see, this is hard for me to say because I feel the danger kind of on multiple sides to say this. Because in one sense, I know many of you are going through really difficult times and trials. And so this is not me saying, don't hear me saying when I say there's a level of joylessness that's maybe damn. I'm not saying, why can't you just smile a little more through your trials? Why can't you just trust God a little more while you suffer? Do a better job of counting it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Actually, in some ways, I think the most joyful people in our church, some of them are the ones going through the hardest things right now. But I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will help those who this is true of to be able to honestly see their hearts and say, yes, my love for Jesus, my joy in the Christian life has dwindled at least a little bit. And I'm not saying that those who this is true of means that your life is an absolute train wreck. And everything's going awful. And there's no thankfulness that in your heart for God at all. Your life, your marriage is a wreck. Everything's going bad. That's not what I'm saying either saying you have no faith at all and you're doing an awful job of being a Christian. I think that for a big portion of our church, your Christian life overall has continued to grow positively as God has been faithful. Your sanctification, though some days it feels like it's two steps backwards and one step forward, has been a net positive over the years. There's no doubt about that. And yet at the same time, many of you Your love for Jesus isn't what it used to be. Your love for God's word isn't what it used to be. The joy that you once found in your relationship with God isn't what it used to be. And I think for some of you, this may be hard to admit. Especially if it's been over the course of multiple years now. Or longer. But even if it's only been a shorter while. It may be hard just to be honest about. But would you take a moment and would you consider if I'm right? Is this true of you? Were you running well and now something's hindered you? Did your joy and your love for Jesus go missing or at least get turned down a few levels? Where did your joy go? When did it happen? What caused it? Again, I'm not saying your life has to be a train wreck. 
I just mean the joy and the love for Jesus that used to be present in your heart is less. And maybe you haven't admitted that to yourself and been honest to yourself about it, but you know it's true. Now, I actually think this is pretty normal. I actually think this isn't all that surprising to be a reality of our church. But I do believe it's going to be a big part of what we will be fighting for in the days and years to come, Lord willing, as a church. In whatever sense. This isn't abnormal because this is how lots of things are in your life. Right? I was at a restaurant downtown Bloomington on Friday night and it was a little too early for the college students to probably be out and most of them are gone anyway. We're still on break. But there were still lots of young couples in this restaurant since it was downtown. And if you're a people watcher like I am, you can kind of look around and you can kind of see like what's going on in people's situations. And you're like, you're like, that couple's on a date and they're probably pretty early on in their relationship because that guy looks really nervous. Or they look like they're both really uncomfortable. Or you see another couple and they look more comfortable. You're like, yeah, they've probably been together for a while longer. But my point is, Lots of young couples there. And for the most part, what I noticed about, among their relationships, there's a lot of joy. Lots of smiles. Lots of laughter. And even if you're in your 30s or you're in your 80s, you were once in your 20s, and you remember seeing lots of your friends being googly-eyed with their significant other, And I saw that the other night. And then you remember going to their weddings. And then sadly, as you've gotten older, you've seen some of those same friends who were once googly-eyed and laughing at their wedding file for divorce. Or maybe you know some friends or family who used to seem like they were in love and now have really tough marriages. Or maybe a step from that, maybe the the marriage is still there, but they just don't really seem to enjoy each other as much anymore. Or maybe it's just colder than it used to be. They don't hate each other, but the love is, it's a little colder now. See, unfortunately, this is more normal than we would like it to be. Certainly more normal than it should be. A marriage should be the display of the relationship between Christ and the church. And Christ loves the church, and Christ died for the church, and Christ gave everything up because he loves her. She is his treasure, and the church treasures Christ and lives to serve him. And this is how a marriage should look and what it should picture. But because of sin, it always falls short, always falls short, and sometimes in some really significant hard ways. And the same is true of our relationship with God. 
It's true that our marriages can become dull, and it's true that our love of God can become dull. It doesn't mean that your marriage has to be getting in arguments all the time. It just means, if you're honest, life can be good, God is good, but the joy is dwindled in some ways. It happens in marriages all the time. It happens in Christian life all the time. And I realize this may come across as pretty depressing in some sense, but I actually think that if we're able to see it and be honest about it, I actually think that it can be pretty encouraging and can get better. Why do you say it's encouraging, Joel? Well, first of all, I think it should be encouraging to some of you because for those wives and husbands who feel like their relationship isn't what it used to be, guess what? You're not the only person in the room who probably feels that way. There are other marriages in this church that you even respect and admire that still need to grow too. You're not alone. And two, if you're honest about the reality of where things are at, whether in your marriage or in your relationship with God, you can actually start to address it and improve it. That's if you don't pretend that everything's fine. If you pretend everything's fine and you don't want to deal with the problem or you don't want anybody to know, then there's little hope. But if you're actually honest, you can see it improved. You can actually work on it and see the relationship get better and healthier. I'm not talking about, like, you'll have butterflies again in the room when, like, that person walks in the room. Now, the fact that you don't get butterflies is, is actually sweet because you feel so comfortable with the person. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But there can be real increasing joy in your marriage. It can continue to go up. Things can actually get better if you're honest about where things are at and you're not too proud to ask your pastors or elders or small group leader or somebody for help. But the point isn't to give marriage advice, though it's true of marriages. And if we can help your marriage in any way, we would be glad to help as best we can. But what I want to focus on this morning is our love for Jesus. Your love for Jesus. You... If you're the person who's seen your joy dwindle, everybody's seen people's joy dwindle in earthly relationships. You've seen it in marriages, as I'd stated. It can happen in, spiritual, in your spiritual relationship, too. Has it happened to you? I also think it's normal, not just because you see it around in and earthly relationships. But old saints have talked about this reality too. This pastor I was talking to this week, um, he was telling me how this past year, he's just been very sad. And he's one of the godliest people I know. And he just told me, I've just been really sad. And God's actually helped him in significant ways over the last couple months, but godly people get sad. Godly people have hard years. And this year he was reading Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is actually just a compilation of sermons that he preached on this topic. And and Lloyd-Jones talks about how he is seeing joylessness in his congregation. And he was seeing second-generation Christians kind of 
not have the same joy that first-generation Christians had. So he had lots of people in his church who were pulled out of the world, kind of first-generation Christians in their families. He said there was a lot of joy. They'd been pulled from the world. And then he said there was a lot of second-generation Christians in his church, and their joy seemed to be lacking. And he was trying to understand this. But he was noticing this as a pastor. And here's what I want to exhort you, especially if this is true of you and your joy is dwindled, and especially if you have children in your home. You do not want to see your children, you do not want to let your children see a joyless Christianity for a long extended period of time. If your kids do not see real love for Jesus in your heart, that is a very dangerous thing for your children. I'm not saying they shouldn't see you struggle. They should. I'm not saying that they shouldn't see you sin. They will, and it's okay. Many of you have lots of kids, and you do not want to see... Your kids grow up in a big family with a joyless marriage where mom and dad aren't really in love and they're just doing their duties as Christian parents, but there's no joy to it. Listen, parenting is hard. Marriage is hard. Following Christ is not easy. But if you've seen your joy dwindle over time for Jesus, especially if you have children in your home, do not settle for a joyless faith. It's not meant to be this way, whether you're in your 20s or 50s or 90s. And if your kids see that for 3, 5, 10, 15 years, they see that, joylessness. They're in real danger leaving your house and thinking, why would I want anything to do with this Christian thing? My parents never really seemed happy about doing it anyway. It just seems like a chore. And for those of you who are older and don't have kids in your house, I don't want you to think that your love for Jesus is just something that was for a younger time. It's for younger people. I want you to finish your race well. I want your love for Jesus to be as sweet as ever. I want for myself and for you to come to the end of our time here and say, I love Jesus so much. He's been so good to me. And I can't wait to be with him. I'm ready to go be with him. Is that you? Would you say that? And so this exhortation for us going forward, um, is that we need to figure this out as a church together. This isn't a sermon that's going to fix everything. In some ways, it's, it's just like a doctor kind of saying, here's what our sickness is. Maybe giving some ideas of how to help it, combat it, but for the most part, it's not something that's going to get fixed just in a Sunday sermon. Some of you men are going to be reading J.C. Ryle's Holiness, and in that book, there's a chapter on fighting, where he talks about 1 Timothy 6, 12. That's where Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. See, I don't really have all the answers. 
I've just been recently been able to put into words what I think I've been seeing in our church, but I know that this Christian life is a fight and there is no way around it. Ryle says the war, this warfare is a thing of which many know nothing. And I think that's part of the problem of why there's so much joyless Christianity. Because Paul says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. He says, take hold of eternal life. Right before that, he says, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, steadfastness and gentleness. Pursue these things. Don't just sit around and wait for them to come. It's not going to happen that way. You have to fight for it. You have to pursue it. Paul says you need to take hold of it. And it's going to be war. Men, if you do not lead this charge in your family, it's going to be very hard for your family to overcome that. Women, these are doubtless truths for you. But husband, if you are not fighting for these things the most in your family, it's going to be very difficult for your wife and kids. And see, Satan is your biggest enemy in all this. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. The devil loves to accuse you. Luther says, Satan knows how to enlarge the smallest sin into a mountain until we think we have committed the worst crime ever committed on earth. Some of you don't have joy in Christ because you don't trust Christ to actually forgive you of your sins. And Esteban and I have been pleading with you for months in various ways to believe the good news of the gospel, that it is really for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from your sins, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from a guilty conscience, actual real freedom. You are free. Your sins have zero hold on you. They used to be a barrier that kept you from God. But because of Christ's work on the cross, that barrier is gone. Your sin's done with. You've been given keys now that you can walk right in, approach the throne of God, call out to him, and be given grace and mercy in the time of need. You've been told that God understands what it's like to be tempted. He has sympathy for you. God actually likes you. He actually enjoys you. He actually loves you and wants to be with you. But Satan loves to take your sins and make you feel like you could never be forgiven, never be good enough. He'll say, yes, Jesus is meek. Yes, he's kind. He's merciful. But he's only that way to those who are good people. People who actually obey and are holy. Satan says, you're a sinner. And you have no shot of Jesus being merciful to you. Jesus was a great example of godliness, wasn't he? And do you see your, how you're living your life? Are you anywhere close to living up to his example? And Luther actually gives a wonderful example of how we should respond to Satan when he speaks to us like this. He says, Oh, cursed Satan, you choose a nice time to talk to me, 
about doing and working when you know very well that I am in trouble over my sins. I will not listen to you. I will listen to Christ, who says that he has come into the world to save sinners. This is the true Christ, and there is no other. And that is what you should tell Satan when you are tempted to forget the gospel, when you are tempted to think that your sins are actually separating you from Christ. And then Paul says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Some of you struggle with joy because you've let a little leaven leaven the whole lump and you can't see what you've done. The obvious examples are what you allow your eyes and ears to see and hear. We talked in youth group this week about Psalm 1 and how the blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. We talked about how the world is constantly trying to counsel you and you have to constantly be on guard against the counsel of the wicked. See, one of the hard parts about Christian li- the Christian life is that there's no coasting. You don't get to coast. Man likes to coast. Get a comfortable salary, a nice house, some security, and just coast. Take it easy. Especially as the result of the fall, men love to abdicate abdicate responsibility and coast. And if you're honest, you don't want to fight the good fight of faith. If you're honest, that's true of most of us. It's true of most of you. Taking hold of eternal life seems like it's a lot of work. Pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness, I think I've got enough of it. I'll probably be all right. You'd rather not. But see, Satan doesn't coast. The world does not coast. They're out for blood. Satan wants to destroy you. The world would love nothing better than to see your family burn. But they're not stupid. Just like the people teaching the Galatians heresy weren't stupid either. They were probably seemed like pretty wonderful people, respectable, really going after godliness, really wanting to really know about God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Satan isn't stupid. The world isn't stupid. They're not coming to you and telling you, I just want to announce to you today that Christianity is fake and it's dumb and you should follow me instead. You'd be like, no. No, thank you. Not coming to you and saying, hey, your thoughts on marriage are dumb. Your thoughts on sexuality are dumb. God is stupid and you shouldn't listen to them. They're much more crafty. They'll do it in more subtle ways. And some of you think you're smart enough to see it because you think like, well, I don't let my kids watch that TV because it has that one character and we don't want our kids to see that one character. And like, that's enough. And you're wise enough to just see all the world's tactics because you saw that one character and you didn't watch that one show. The world is fighting a war against you and your family. And you don't have the option to not fight it. That's what I'm trying to make clear. It's not optional. You have the option to fight it and get bloody. Or if you don't fight it, you'll let your soul be destroyed. 
and the souls that you're responsible for. So men, those are your two options. You get bloody and you fight, or you coast and you get destroyed. I have no doubt that this will get discussed in the holiness study, so I won't press it too much further for the sake of this morning. But church, we must be careful. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Those of you that are younger, children, youth, let me illustrate this with you in a way that my mom illustrated it with me when I was a little boy. I remember arguing with my mom because I wanted to watch something. I can't remember what it was. I don't remember what it had in it. But I, I remember saying it didn't have that much bad stuff in it. I don't know if it was language or something. I just didn't, wasn't a bad. And she told me a parable of a young boy who came up to his dad with his friends and he said, Dad, can we watch this movie? It just has a little bit of bad words in it. And the dad said, I'll think about it. So the boys and his friend, the boy and friends go and they play. And dad comes back later with some brownies. And he invited the boys over and he says, hey, take one, enjoy. And the boys begin to eat. And the dad says, I hope you're enjoying the brownies. They're my special brownies. The boys say, what makes them so special? He said, well, they just have a little bit of dog poop in them. Just a little bit of dog poop. Would you eat those brownies, Samuel? No, I don't think so. So children, youth, if your parents tell you not to watch something, if they tell you not to wear something, if they tell you not to read something, don't make them out to be the bad guys. Don't make them feel bad for trying to love and protect you. The world's out to destroy you. And they've been put in charge by God to protect you. Don't tell them that your friends are allowed to do this or wear that or read this or go there. Trust your parents. Honor them by giving them your trust. There is a war going on, and I promise as you continue to grow and maturity, you will be thankful that your parents were trying to protect you from a little bad leaven that would leaven the whole lump. You may not agree with everything that they did, but you will be very thankful that they tried to protect you. But church, this is a fight. It's a fight to believe the gospel. It's a fight to have joy. It's a fight to take care, take hold of eternal life. It's a fight to not let bad leaven ruin the whole lump, and you can't avoid it. It's not optional. There's a war going on, and I promise you, as you continue to grow in maturity, excuse me, there's a, there's a war going on, and you can't avoid it. If you try to avoid it, at best, if you try to avoid it, at best, your love for God will be dull. And that's if God is very merciful and kind. At worst, your soul and the souls of your family will be devoured by Satan because he's not coasting. See, like Paul in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that our church will grow to fight well in the years ahead, and I, I want to get to verses 10 through 12, but I should stop here for today, and we'll pick up there next time. So, what to do? Here's what I would like for you to do. I have some exhortations as we close. First, if what I said of you, if what I've said today is true of you, if your love for Christ has dwindled, 
If your joy has dwindled, would you please be honest about it? If your love of God is stronger than ever, praise God. Be on guard to not let bad leaven leaven the whole lump. Praise God. But if you have seen your love for Jesus dwindle and your joy grow a little colder over time, would you be honest about it? Would you be honest about it in your small groups? Women honest, women honest with it in their small groups? Men telling, it to, telling this truth to other men in your small group? Your pastors would love to know this too because we'd love to pray for you. Men, it would actually be encouraging, men, if you came up to me and said, yeah, Joel, that is true of me, and I would love for you to pray for me. And just know this as we keep walking this Christian life together. That would actually be encouraging to know because I genuinely would love to carry that in my heart and keep you in my prayers to help you and your family, okay? Because I think this is going to play an important role in the days ahead for our church. Like I said, it doesn't mean that your life is falling apart. But is your love for Jesus missing? Your love for his word missing? If your love for God's word has dwindled or died down, be honest about it, and I'd encourage you to make a resolution, a New Year's resolution, to try to read God's word more. New Year is a great time to do that. Who cares if you're starting a week late? Church, I believe this is a big fight that we have before us and the days ahead. I want to see our, our church be full of families that love Jesus and parents who love Jesus and their kids to see that their parents truly love Jesus and love one another and have that be contagious in our families. I don't want to see cold parents bring their kids to church for 18 years with cold hearts And I fear what that would mean for the next generation in our church. If we don't fight this fight and really work hard to take hold of eternal life, it's going to be a lot of work, but God will help us. He really wants this for you. So, I want you to be prepared in your heart. It will be a hard fight. It's going to take a lot of work. It'll be bloody. It'll take some sweat. The Christian life isn't coasting. It's hard work. And it starts by being confident in the gospel, knowing that God is pleased with you, that he loves you and actually enjoys you, even though you have many sins. And if you're not confident of that, then nothing else matters. So let's stand and let's sing before the throne of God above and thank God that we've been forgiven of our sins. For some of us, we just admit to you that our love for you is, is weak and that we would love to see it grow. Father, for some of us, our love for your word has dwindled over the last couple of years. But we don't want it to be so. Father, we remember the sweet times that we've had with you. And we long for you to restore that. We long for you to help us to fight our flesh, to take hold of eternal life, pursuing these things, whatever that means, God. We need strength. 
we would like to coast. Forgive us for wanting to coast. Forgive us for the selfishness of just wanting to have a comfortable time and finish our days. Father, help us trust that our sins are forgiven. Help us be wise to not let leaven ruin lumps or make lumps and ruin our spiritual life. Father, we need you. Thank you that we can come before you. We can call out to you. We can find mercy. And we can be comforted that our sins are forgiven with songs like this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.